Maui Howie, again the opportunity that you allow me to share your word, your truth, your knowledge, your wisdom with anyone that has an ear to hear the message, to hear the words, but listen to what's being said to go to your written word, to seek your truth, seek your face, and learn of your truth, of your knowledge, of your wisdom, your grace, your greatness, your love for us. Abba Yahweh Aman, Yeshua Aman, Parkutos Aman. So this very profound, deep, place I find myself again except that I know it's coming all the time because I'm an ambassador and I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do as ambassadors do I have a I have a diplomatic visa here from the kingdom of heaven which is really great and I've shared with you before that I have no actual theological degree from man or mammon here some fancy little scroll work I, I guess I could get some rice paper or something and and do my calligraphy on it, which I the Lord has given me that ability and, and that that knowledge. Um, I could draw one out and make it look real fancy and stick it on the wall, but what's the purpose? It's going to only be for people to look at, see, because I know in whom I believe and I am persuaded that he provides me with all that necessary information, all that necessary knowledge, wisdom and he provides it for me and I've shared this numerous times and I'll do so again for the newcomers or someone who doesn't recall but see my HSU degree is so intimately more valuable and and more valid than any that is signed by man or mammon and you have these individuals that take such great pride in these little rice paper pieces of documentation or, or uh, parchment paper that they have signed and scribbled on and have all this little gold filigree in the uh, embossed coat of arms for the university they went to. Well, okay, that's fine. And I carry mine with me all the time, except that mine isn't for everyone to see. Mine is for me to see and be aware of unless I blab about it like I'm doing now. But my degree is from HSU. My chancellor is the Lord God Almighty. My vice chancellor is, of course, the only begotten son of God who came and put his life on the cross for my sake. And my guidance counselor, that would be the Holy Spirit. So, validation, much more important from God. And for those of you that love to be offended by things and get all agitated and want to find some place, reason not to listen, I don't care. I, I'd say to remind you of that all the time because, see, the validation that comes from my Lord, my God, is what is most important. And we really need to practice allowing that to be the focus point of our lives and our walking the walk, not just talking the talk, but walking the walk because everything is about 
the will of the Father. Remember when Christ Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he found his little niche place. He went over to, to be off the, off the path where people walked in and out of the garden and he found a little place that was kind of like an alcove. It was hidden somewhat. And he went in there to pray. And he was praying one night so fervently that he broke blood vessels in and around his face and he was bleeding. The scripture tells us that. Sweat blops, sweat drops of blood. And he was begging for the cup to be removed. What was Jesus talking about? He knew he was going to be crucified. And when it came down to the wire, he didn't want to die that way. It, come on. The Romans were really, really adept at crucifixions. They, it wasn't something new. It had been around, but the Romans took it to what they would say, what we call nowadays the next level. They were really, really good at it. And he knew that he would be beaten. He knew that he'd be uh, tortured before he even got to the cross. And I've shared with you before that my older brother had a dear friend of his. They studied the word together. And he was a doctor. And he did an essay because he was interested in what took place with the crucifixion. He spent a lot of time studying this in history, and the Romans were really good at it. The first thing they did is they beat Jesus nearly to a pulp with both their hands, their fists, and they also beat him with what they call a what we call nowadays a cat of nine tails. And the one that they use on some of them were knotted, but the ones that they use on Jesus had lead beads that were put inside the leather straps. And they beat him with that. Jesus was beaten so much and so many times that the flesh was torn from his bones right down to the sinew. He was beaten nearly to death. And they cast lots for his clothes, made fun of him. And then they gave him a crown, a crown of thorns, briar that they had pulled and wove together so they would put it around his head. And the thorns were very long, sharp, and they pushed it down on his head so that he would bleed. And then they took my Lord, my King, who deliberately, incidentally, let me refresh because I've shared this already. He deliberately walked up Golgotha, the place of the skull. But he was beaten so much that he could barely walk. Someone had to carry for him. And they went up nearly to the crest and then they laid the cross down they put him on it 
and they drove the nail spikes through his hands and his feet. Different crucifying him than they did with others. When they crucified others, a lot of times they would just tie him because they were just up there to hang out for a day, maybe two days. Sometimes they would hang there until they died. And sometimes they were just there until they turned to toast and they were being punished. It just depended on, I, I guess, the, the mood of the magistrate or designated purpose. But Jesus was nailed to the cross. The nails were driven through his flesh. And when he was in the garden, he knew he already knew that these things were coming as part of the plan, and he prayed that this cup would be lifted from him. He didn't he didn't want to go. Come on now. Remember, I've shared this with you before too. Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, anointed of God, Savior, Redeemer, Emmanuel, God with us, God in us. He knew what was coming. Because remember this. He was holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, a man. He walked in this plane of existence. He was tempted of man. He was all the things. He ate with us. I mean, come on. He walked around. He, he had fish and bread with the disciples on the beach. And when he was walking on his mission, they were getting food and the disciples had to go get meat. What? Uh, God was just kind of floating around or he was just floating around above the ground as they traveled around and he didn't require food and sustenance and he didn't get tired. He didn't get hot. He didn't get sweaty. No, Christ Jesus was walking in this plane of existence, holy as a man, but here's the mystery. And you can't figure it out, so stop trying. He was also holy, the only begotten son of God. He just didn't bring all the heavenly attributes with him. Many he did. He knew what was coming, so he was praying so fervently in the garden that he broke the blood vessels in his face. And he said, Father, if there's any way, take this cup from me. Took a breath, and he said, No, not my will, but thine be done. Because he knew that it was already something that they had planned together, deliberately, and he was going to deliberately die for me. And you. But I make it personal because any one of us can do that. And I've told you that before. God desires a personal relationship with each of us. We have to make it that way. You have to, you have to desire it as much as he does. But I know that that's entirely difficult. And you have to understand when I've shared this before is that, you know, God has much more faith in us than we do in him. Uh, so many of us decide that we don't want to have faith in God, and we just don't. We do that thing called the apostasy, and we walk away, we turn our backs on God, and we shake our fists at him. We blame God for everything that goes on, because after all, God is God, and he can make it not so. Well, yes and no, he can. But we have also, uh, my mom used to have this saying that she used to tell us a long time ago when we were younger and growing up, is this has to do with consequential life. And she said, you've made your bed, now you have to lie in it. What does that mean? That means you made the decisions to stir things up. You made the decision to get your sheets all knotted up and messed up, and now you're, you're uncomfortable in it. Remember that you did this. So the consequential life that I walk in, and I've shared this with you before, and it's not... Uh, I know it sounds like I'm griping, but I'm not. I'm not griping and complaining. I'm sharing it with you because this is a testimony. 
I'm living a consequential life because I did so much foolishness regarding my son's mom. Oh my goodness gracious, what a complete bonehead I was. Still am sometimes. But I didn't pay attention to what the Bible was telling me. I was, try I was trying to be in control. What God has put together, let no man tear asunder or put asunder, depending on the translation that's written. But did I pay attention to that? No. I just griped, complained, whined, and shook my hand at Fizzin, screaming and hollering. You know, I had the PTS issues going on. And remember, uh, I've shared this with you also, is that I don't, I don't, you know, so many people call it PTSD. Yeah, that's a terminology and stuff. But, you know, thinking about it and talking to, uh, talking it over and listening to the rationale of, of another individual who's also gone through the same thing. PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Is it a disorder? Is it a disease? Some people call it post-traumatic stress disease. Well, it's not. It's something that, unless you go through it, unless you've been through it, unless you've experienced what happens to the individuals, you're not going to understand at all. And doctors like to uh, explain things away by giving it this fancy title of a disease or a disorder. Well, what's disordering about it? Yeah, you, you know, you get, you get angrier than you should and things happen. And I lived the consequential life because I did it. But my son's mom is so forgiving. She is a caring, loving person. We have communication. We talk and everything. And she's, she's so wonderful. And I've shared this before. I know, I know that if I had been walking with God as I should have been, we'd still be together. I know that. I believe that. But because I was stupidly following my own footsteps and not walk, I wasn't walking and walk. I was talking and talk, but not walking and walk. So now I have a consequential life. I have made my bed and now I have to lie in it. So that's what that means and that's what it's about. Consequential, and you have to understand this. Understand this too. Our Lord is great. And he is so great and so gracious and so merciful that it's inconceivable to calculate. So why is it that so many of us in this plane of existence try to figure out the ways and thoughts of our Heavenly Father? Why is it so important that individuals try to do that? I don't get it. Because you won't be able to. And we find this, Isaiah, his prophet, speaks this rema from God, specifically. I'm going to share with you um, that in Isaiah 55, it's a good, good chapter. You ought to read the whole thing. I'm going to start in verse 7, actually. I was going to start at 8 and share with you those two, but I'm going back up to verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God is always ready to forgive you, put his arms around you, and hug you, just like when 
Christ Jesus was teaching us about the prodigal son. And that word prodigal means living any which way you want, doing whatever you want, as long as you don't break bones or anything. You might knock somebody down and knock a tooth out or something, but you know, hey, you didn't kill him, so it's okay. You do with what you want, you do how you want, you do when you want, and go, and he was doing that. I mean, the kid was drinking and he was spent, and all the money that he told his father, he said, I want my inheritance. I, well, wait a second. Okay, let me get on to that now. I, I'm going to sidetrack a minute. Where is it anywhere written in the Constitution or the law that says that any child being raised by a set of parents is got the house, the money, whatever's left, that that is automatically theirs? And many children consider that to be just the way it is. Well, okay, get over yourself. It's not just the way it is. Your parents are being gracious in order to do that. First of all, let's examine some things. You were given life. You were brought up. You were given a, a roof over your head. You were given clothing. You were given food. You were given a place to sleep. And your education was taken care of. And many parents even paid for further education. Not all, but many did. Many were able to. And then you have the children come around and when the family, get, when mom and dad start getting sick and they can't take it, what do they do? They want to put them in a home. They don't want to have anything to do with them and they don't want to be responsible for taking care of them. And then they gripe and complain because they didn't get left any inheritance. What? And you think that you have that coming by virtue of the fact that what? You were breathing and and taking up the same airspace that mom and dad were in their house? I'm sorry, okay. Sorry, Father, I'm going to get back on track. But I'm just... <laughs> Forgive me, please. I'm an old guy and I do that. So, um, you have to understand, there's so many people in this plane of existence to try to figure out the deliberate steps and the deliberate ways that Jesus has done. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. He puts his arm around you and he says, of course I forgive you. Now the, when the prodigal son came back, he was drunken, he didn't have shoes on his feet, the, the ring that was his. I mean, he went to the father and he said, I just want everything that I have coming to me and I want to leave. I want it and I want it now. What is that song? I want it, I want it now. Anyway, so he took the money and he left. And then when he came back, the father was so pleased to see that he wasn't dead and he saw how ragged he was. So he took off and he ran out and he took one of his housemen with him and he said, put a robe on him, shoes on his feet and make, here, put my ring on his finger. And when he came back, and that was so none of the people that were around the house at the well or anything there, they would see what he had done because in culture at that time, he would have been ostracized and he, he, could, have been, he could have been beaten by the laws of man in that time. And his father still loved him and he protected him from that. And he ran to his son and he fell on his neck and put his arms around him and he kissed him. 
And then the oldest son, who was home all the time, was griping because dad wanted to kill a fatted calf and have a big old barbecue. Well, the oldest son got all bent out of shape and griped. And then finally, he told his father why he was so angry. And the father just looked at him and he said, son, all you had to do was ask. This is for him because he was thought once dead and now he's alive and he's back with us. All you had to do was ask me. I would have been happy to share food and, and, and prepare a meal for you and your friends. All you had to do was ask me. You stayed with me. You were with me all the time. And this is how we are as Christians. This is what the parable that Jesus is trying to teach us. We many times are exactly that way. God is so happy to see us come back. And the Bible tells us to remind us that when we return, there is great rejoicing in heaven. The angels have a great big old party up there. They have a big, they sit and they are so delighted and God is so pleased and he will always forgive. He will always put his arms around us and he will say, welcome home. Welcome back. I'm glad you decided to come back. The nation of Israel, all they did is wander out of Egypt and they were griping at God. They were shaking their fists at God and blaming him for everything. We do the same thing today. We blame God for everything that goes wrong around us and everything that happens wrong. But wait a minute, take a look at it. Really? You build where you shouldn't build. You live where you shouldn't live. You do things you shouldn't do. You take these poisonous medications that you shouldn't be taking because you have these that think that they're smarter and better than God's wisdom, and they can make medications that are better, stronger, and faster, but yet they're full of poison, and we take them. Why do you think we have so many things that are going on with us? We brought it upon ourselves. It's consequential living. Hello. But yet, we will sit down here. We're going to shake our hands and fists at God and say, why did you let that happen? Well, because we decided to go that way and he didn't want us to. God loves us. Here we go. Further reading of verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So why again? The question begs to ask, why do we try to figure out why God did something or why it was done? You can't figure it out, so why do you keep processing that? You're going to explode your brain cells, you're going to get a headache, and then you're going to be angry, resentful, and gripe and complain, and then all you're going to do is, is grumble and mumble to those around you that are close enough to hear you. And sometimes you get loud enough that others hear you that shouldn't hear you. A true believer... And a true Christian, not a label head and not a self-proclaimed Christian, but one who is actually walking the walk and knows that everything that God does is deliberate. Everything that Jesus does is deliberate. Absolutely, his designs and his plans are absolutely deliberate. And again, 
we go back to Isaiah 55 and we go to verse 10 and 11. Shared this with you the other day. For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth and make it bring forth blood, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So the rain and snow comes down in order that things here will be done and taken care of and that we can utilize the things that fruit and grow for us. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. Very deliberate, very, very much so. So, brothers and sisters, we have to remember that, that everything that God does is deliberate and purposeful. It doesn't, it's not happenstance. Jesus went into Samaria deliberately. And I mean, we can see, the scripture is very specific. John 4, 4 tells us that very thing. He must needs go to Samaria. He had an appointment with the woman to go and meet her there. He had an appointment at Jacob's well on Joseph's land. And there he went. And so he did. Now, the thing about what Jesus did was deliberately, <laughs> I love this, it was quite deliberate. In this appointment with her, Christ stepped over and beyond cultural and sociological boundaries. He deliberately went into Samaria, deliberately engaged in conversation with a Samaritan and a woman of Samaria. And you're going, well, wait a minute, I'm not quite following. Just pay attention here. Christ's actions were intrinsically contrary to cultural norm at the time. Yet so deliberate, men didn't make a habit of speaking to women unless it was their wives or they were in private. It was never done out in public. And she was a Samaritan. So there were several things that he did. First of all, he crossed the Samaritan, the Samaritan border. He walked into Samaria. He spoke to a Samaritan and a Samaritan woman, which was bad enough itself, but that he was speaking with a woman. And she was surprised, a little bewildered and shocked. But then when the disciples showed up, because they went off to get sustenance for them, I guess they went down to Shakir, the village that was close by, and when they came back, they marveled that he was speaking to a woman. Didn't say anything about, you know, how, you know, they were just like, oh, look over there at the, well, isn't that, wait a minute, that's Jesus and he's talking to a Sumerian woman. Whoa. They didn't come up and question him. They didn't say, what are you doing? Oh, no. 
<laughs> they didn't do that. But they were a little surprised. And we shared that verbal illustration about the deliberates of every action and the reactions that come about these things. Everything is deliberate and everything is done. Now, we also have a Bible translation speaks of, uh, and it depends on the translation you have. Um, you'll find pretty much every single Bible translation that I've ever read has always talked about five and four. Uh, it doesn't talk about actual mathematics, but just bear with me and I'll clarify it. So when Jesus is performing the deliberate miracle of the feeding, and I mean, even that was a deliberate act. It wasn't that, oh my gosh, look what I've done. They're, oh my goodness gracious, look at all these people here. He knew what was going on. He knew. But here's the thing. Depending on the translation, as I said, and it's, it's strictly a translation. So those of you that really like to look for things to be offended at and look for things to blame at and point at and belittle and degrade it, uh, cut it out. Because this is not saying that the Bible is incorrect. This is just saying that the translations do not include things that we should. My perception, my opinion. So the Bible talks about the feeding of the 5,000 in one instance and the feeding of the 4,000 in another instance. However, if you do mathematics, okay, now culturally, and sociologically, back in that day, they counted the men as the head of the house. Don't get your knickers in a bunch. That's just the way things were done back then. So behave yourself. So when they count, when the disciples made the count, they counted 5,000 men, heads of the house. And they had them set in the groups. And they did the same thing when Jesus fed the 4,000. Now, Here's where things get a little twisted and interesting. And where we can actually think, because this isn't part of that higher way, this is just simple math. Do the math. So Jesus had the disciples set down the 5,000, which they did, but then the men in most cases were married. So now you have to double that number because there were not only 5,000 men, but their wives, now you have 5,000 women. What does that equal? Five plus five, that's 10. So there are 10,000 that Jesus is feeding. Most families in that day had two to four children. We're going to do this conservative math and we're going to do it easily, hopefully, and you can follow me. So now you have the man and the wife, 10. Now you add the first child, another five. So now you have 15 and now you add the second child, now you have 20. So Jesus fed 20, at least 20,000 people on the first time. Again, let's share with you simple math. Culturally, they only counted the head of the house and they didn't even count the, the wives and the children, okay? 
So when the translation of the Bible was done, it doesn't make the Bible incorrect. It just makes it a translation. Understand. Again, take the knot out of your knickers. You're going to sit much more comfortably and you don't have to squirm around. Got it? Good. And then, of course, we can do the same thing when he fed the 4,000. So you got 4,000 and then you have the wives, another 4,000. Now you have 8,000 and you have one child is another 4,000. So now you have 12,000 and then you have a second child, another 4,000. So now you have 16,000 people that he fed the second time. Okay, so that's just doing the the easy math. Okay, so does that mean that the word of God is incorrect? Nay, nay. It just means that the math was done by cultural standards, and that's what they did. In that day and age, in that culture, they counted the men ahead of house. So in the one, 5,000. In the second, 4,000. But we can do our cultural math and figure it out. Not a hard thing to do. Don't make it more difficult than it need be. Which is exactly why we are reminded by Isaiah and the Bible tells us that his ways are higher, his thoughts are higher, and you're just going to give yourself a headache to try to figure it out because you're not going to be able to figure it out. All you have to do is go outside on a clear night and find yourself an unlight polluted area and look up at the sky. Oh my God in heaven, thank you for the depth. Thank you, my God, for what you've done and given and shared with us. So don't look for a reason to sling mud and make accusations. Just stop it. Just rem Paul reminds us he wrote in his second letter to his adopted earthly son, Timothy, not his actual son because he was never married and he didn't have any children, but he, he called Timothy his son. In 2 Timothy 2.15, he's telling Timothy, and this is, he's also speaking, I'm going to back up a couple verses. Uh, go back to verse 14. Paul's reminding him, because this is how we tend to be. Of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. So you have individuals that are, what they're saying is, it's not profitable for anyone. It, it, it makes no sense. And when they do certain things and they're doing so to subvert, it's to um, they're looking to undermine. 
Okay, so we need to be guarded against that. And Paul is writing to him to say that it, it there's nothing, there's no reason for it. But he reminds Timothy, he says in verse 15, study to show the self-approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So as his workman, as his ambassador that I am, because that's what he asked me to do, I'm an ambassador for the kingdom of heaven, but shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. He's trying to warn us that, that those that are on the go for that subversion and to deceive and, and steer you wrongly, the, the Bible warns us greatly about the, the liars and the deceivers and false prophets and the teachings. We have to be guarded against that. And that's what he's talking about. Because that's what they look to do. They look to undermine or get you confused. And this is what the devil wants you to be, confused. To have you in a total confused state. They want The, the devil has these minions that are working for him and they want you to be in a flummox. Which just simply means that you're in a total confused state of mind. You can't answer or control. And at this point, hmm, you're not in control. Many of us can't handle that. We cannot handle just like, okay, I'm gonna, I can't help it. I'm going to Jack Nicholson. A few good men. The truth, you can't handle the truth. Anyway, sorry, I couldn't help it. I just remember that. I don't know why I think of that each and every time I talk about this or think about it or I'm reading it. Um, I just see Jack Nicholson, who was this gruff, hard guy, and he was hollering at Tom Cruise, who was a Navy lawyer, who was demanding the truth from him. And he said, you can't handle the truth, just like the Pharisees told Jesus they called him a liar and a devil and all this other stuff, blasphemer and all this stuff. And, and he was talking about the seed of Abraham and Jesus was, oh, wait a minute, you're making a whole lot of claims. And he said, no wonder you don't understand what I'm saying because I'm speaking truth and you don't get the truth because your father is a liar. Oh, they didn't like that. It was the truth. So what I'm trying to tell you, brothers and sisters, is stop trying to figure things out with your earthly finite mind. Your thought process doesn't allow you to be able to do it because it is finite. Our Lord God in heaven is infinitely wiser. His ways are infinitely higher and greater. So stop trying to figure it out. And I thank my God that he has driven me to the word that I keep doing this and that I continue to be able to be strong and not trying to figure it out. I don't need to be in control. And I I drove myself there many times that I want to be in control. This is why, why you get rattled and agitated and irritated at times. 
But we also have to remember that everything about God and from God is deliberate. Romans 8, 28, in our adoption letter, he reminds us, and we know that all things work together for good for them that love God, me, to them who are the called according to his purpose. All of us that are true believers, true Christians who are walking the walk and not just talking the talk, that we will know and understand what I'm saying. Called according to his purpose. It's by his will and not ours. Then we're going to go over to Ephesians 3, 18 and 19. And Paul, actually, I'm going to back up to verse 17. Paul's writing this to the church in Ephesus. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints, that would be all true believers and all real Christians that are walking the walk and not just talking the talk, we are called the saints doesn't require a little shaking of any little device and that you have some man telling you that you're now a saint. God calls us that. You're a true believer, a faithful believer, and a follower of the Holy Spirit. You're a saint. That's biblical. May be able to comprehend that with all saints that is the breadth, the length, and the depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Okay. Are we going to know his ways and his thoughts? No. But we are going to be able to know that they are higher, deeper, broader, and so much greater in expanse than we can possibly know. And that we know that the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that is beyond our real knowledge, our finite minds. We can't understand. How is it? Explain to me if you can. And I know you can't. So that's kind of a sarcastic rhetorical question because I know you don't have an answer. Jesus Christ deliberately came the only begotten Son of God, who was given given that title and that name, and put into as a as a earthly child, and came here, walked in this plane of existence, so that He would know and connect and show us by demonstration the intentional purpose to come here, and then walk in and be taken to Golgotha and his hands and feet hammered into timbers and raised up to die. He stepped off his throne. He set down his crown and he looked at Raven and he said, I love you, I'm coming. I'm coming. Hang on, I'm coming. He did that for each and every single one of us. 
deliberate, intentional. He came and he died for each and every one of us so that we would have an opportunity to be ambassadors in the kingdom of heaven and heirs and joint heirs with Christ Jesus in that kingdom. Brothers and sisters, you are in my prayers going out and coming in. Be blessed.